0: The recording that you're about to listen to is a talk from the City Bible Forum. We would appreciate you respecting our copyright by not making copies of this talk or altering the content in any way. We hope that you find the material beneficial. If you would like more information on the City Bible Forum, you can visit us on the web at citybibleforum.org. Well, folks, my guess is that you woke up on Monday morning uh, with uh, mixed feelings. One was, yahoo, we don't have to go to work. But as soon as you turn on radio, television, pick up a newspaper, uh, the news of what's happened in Orlando, uh, it can't help but grab you emotionally. I just, uh, just so many pictures on the internet that, uh, well, talk about uh, pain and suffering. I thought this lady's face was just kind of, I don't know if you could see her very well. Um, usually when I pick up a newspaper and read it, as I put it down, I think, I'm not sure why I bothered reading it, because you very rarely pick up a newspaper and feel happier once you put it down. It's, the more you engage with the wider world, the more depressing it is. My eldest daughter deliberately does not read the newspaper, does not watch news on television. She, as she says, she lives in a happy little Disneyland bubble with her little kids. And if something's really important, someone will tell me about it. And the longer I on, I think, well, that's probably not a bad you know, strategy. Although sometimes we're not we're not working. Yeah, that one's working. <laughs> okay, I'm not sure though I need it really. Anyway, we're recording. Uh, although sometimes there are certain things you just can't avoid. What I noticed was this one was on the net um, on the news services This is one of the tweets sent out by someone who was actually in uh, the nightclub in Orlando. You see at the bottom there, she says, uh, or oh, so he says. One, uh, I've never seen so many dead bodies on the floor. Uh, God is good that my friends and I didn't get shot. Uh, you've got to ask, where, where is God in all this? I On one morning of the week, I, I meet with a, with a businessman and um, he's trying to work out what it means to follow Jesus and we're reading John's Gospel and he keeps asking me, where is God in all this? Why doesn't God do something? How can God allow this? Now, that's a fair question. Now, I want to kind of... Just as an introduction, what is it that Jesus said was God's priority in our world? And the way that Jesus saw his mission and what he'd come to do and what God's on about is maybe maybe actually quite different to the way that you thought of it, certainly different to the way most people would think. And I want to show you today what is it that Jesus says is the most important thing that, that he came to do or bring in his way of seeing the world, but also his way of the the future and solutions and how do you fix the whole mess so in your uh, in your handout is printed out a part of Luke's gospel Luke chapter 17 uh, well let's begin let's read it and you'll see what it is that Jesus teaches once on being asked by the Pharisees now now if you're not used to the uh, New Testament the the Pharisees were kind of the religious leaders of the day they weren't paid priests, but they were people who took the, the Old Testament, uh, their Bible very seriously. Um, and they're they're asking him a question once when asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come. Now they're looking at the kingdom of God, what does that mean? In the Old Testament, in the in the, the Bibles we the first part of the Bible the lead up to Jesus, the Old Testament talked about a time when God's rule or God's reign or God's kingdom would come. And God would rule over the whole world, and God's king would be in charge forever. Um, Let me show you. For example, quite a famous part of the Bible, um, in the book of Isaiah, written about 8th century BC, uh, these words that Handel picked up in the Messiah as he wrote it. See what's promised? "'For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders.' And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. And he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. Now, if you're a first century Jewish person, you're you're looking forward to that. God's King arriving and setting up his kingdom and... Now as well as that, for example, uh, in the book of Daniel, so Daniel lived about sixth century BC. Daniel, uh, the second half of the book of Daniel lists a whole series of visions that he had. And in one of his visions he sees a chaotic world and then, and then he says, in my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like a son of man. Which is just a way of saying really a human being, a, a man. Coming with the clouds of heaven, he approached the ancient of days namely God, it was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worship him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So when the when the Pharisees, as as good first century Jews, when they come and ask Jesus about this, they're looking for the one who will come and kick out the Romans and set up a world empire and it'll all be good. So they asked, when is that going to happen? And look at Jesus' answer. It's not what they would have expected. Jesus replied, the coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed. Normal people say, here it is or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. What's he mean? Well, they were expecting, trying to kick out the Romans, set up a kingdom and be, you know, this massive organisation with it. Jesus said, no, no, it's not place that you can go to, it's not a, a, an organisation you can point to, it's not a, an institution it's not it's not sandstone buildings um, it's not the Anglican Church or the Presbyterian Church, it's not St Mary's Cathedral what is it? Do you see what he says? End of verse 21 because the kingdom of God is in your midst now there's a slight kind of um, wrinkle in that. See the word translated this is the New International Version, they've gone for in your midst. The, the the Greek word there or the original word there, entos, can mean two different things. It can mean in the middle of you. So you say, oh, okay, the dark projector is in our midst. It's one of it's in the middle. Or it can mean the same word can mean inside you. And it's hard to know exactly which one Jesus means here. Uh, does he mean in your midst or does he mean inside you? It could go either way. I wonder whether Luke's left it deliberately ambiguous. Because as Jesus stands there and talks to these people who are trying to trap him, really, the the kingdom of God is in the middle there. Why? Because he's there. The king's there. Jesus says it started already. So the kingdom of God's in your midst. Jesus himself is there, the king. But as well as that, Jesus keeps teaching that the kingdom of God is a spiritual reality inside you. It's a change that God will make to people's hearts. God will make through His Spirit change to people's hearts that will change the way people relate to Jesus or relate to God, if you like. To want to actually serve Jesus as their King, to know God, to, to trust His King, is to, is to come into His Kingdom. And if you have eyes to see it, you, you'll be able to see it, but you won't be able to point it not like an organisation or a building or a place it's inside people now Jesus talks about when you understand actually I've got to say that there's one young there's one young guy I know and I I pray for him that God would show him the kingdom of God that he would see that because what Jesus says when you see that reality of people coming to know Jesus as their king when you can see that it's the most precious thing that it will be uh, it, it he describes it as like a treasure hidden in a field. Once you find it, you'll do anything to get that field and the treasure. Or that this perfect pearl that the, the, the merchant finds and, and he sells everything he has to get the perfect pearl. He says it'll start small like a mustard seed and fill the world. So now it's so precious if you have eyes to see it. And he also talks though about the future. So you know see on the outline there Jesus talks about the kingdom of God as now and not yet. Now, but not yet complete. And what, was, what does it look like in the future? Well, here's a quote from um, Peter Jensen. You see, yep, we might need to uh, get a new data projector, I think, could crank it up a bit, or I need new glasses. Uh, Peter Jensen, who until ooh, two years ago, now Archbishop bishop of Sydney, uh, Peter uh, gave the 2005 Boyer lectures, the lectures uh, for the ABC, and then turned that into a book called The Future of Jesus Christ. Listen to what he says. It's a beautiful summary about Jesus' teaching about his kingdom. And what did he, Jesus, say about that coming kingdom? The picture that Jesus painted at the end involved the great things that we would all probably long for: the defeat of evil, the triumph of good, the death of death, a future of justice and yet forgiveness, intense, overflowing human happiness and joy. He called the coming of the kingdom, the kingdom, a banquet, a wedding, a feast, a resurrection a robust and loving community in which every tear would be wiped away and we would live joyously as we were meant to under the rule of the Father God. Great paragraph. That's what Jesus is saying. And it started now, but one day when he returns, it'll be fulfilled. Like, just as Peter says, it's kind of a summary of what Jesus taught in the Gospels. Now, in view of that, in view of it kind of it started now and, and, and it's coming in the future, you notice in verse um, 22, he speaks to his disciples. So, you've, you've got his answer to the Pharisees who were trying to trap him and essentially were his enemies. And he said to them, you, you probably can't see this because you can't, it's not a place. You, it's within you um, or within my disciples. And then he talks to the disciples in verse 22. And he says, when, when you truly understand what the kingdom will be like when it arrives, you'll long for that to come. The verse twenty-two. Then he said to his disciples, the time is coming when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, but you will not see it. When he says days, I think what he means is the idea that, that and notice he calls himself the Son of Man, exactly like out of that Daniel quote. Um, I think he means when he comes back and, and brings the kingdom, brings the judgment day, after that he'll reign the days of the son of man you'll long for that to come he's saying why because of the heartache and the mess that the world will be because his disciples will be persecuted once you've seen it you long for it but don't be don't be worried verse 23 people will tell you there he is or here he is don't go running after them i think what he's saying is don't worry you won't miss it so when it comes to jesus return and the kingdom really coming no need to set your alarm it'll be okay You you won't sleep through it. You can see verse twenty-four: "For the Son of Man in His day will be like lightning, which flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other." You ever been at night, big thunderstorm? You know, you really a flash of lightning lights up the whole sky. That's what he's saying. But between when Jesus speaks now in in Luke's Gospel, in chapter seventeen, and when He returns, He must suffer. See verse twenty-five. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. What does he mean? Well, he's on his way to Jerusalem. He knows what will happen. They will crucify him as he pays the price of forgiveness. Now, So he moves from the kingdom now to what's the end, if you like, or the beginning, depending on how you say it. His return. And he says a number of things. You see on the outline there in verse 26, His return will be what? Unexpected. Verse 26, just as it was in the days of Noah, so also will it be in the days of the Son of Man. People were eating and drinking, marrying and being given in marriage. Up to the day Noah entered the ark and then the flood came and destroyed them all. What's he saying? It was unexpected and then it was too late. Or verse 28, it was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulphur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. Now, there's some serious warnings from gentle Jesus. Um, if you read Genesis chapter 6, right back at the beginning of the Bible, what Genesis says is that God was grieved about the state of the world, that the world was filled with violence. And every thought of people's hearts was evil, and so God decides that He will send a flood and and start again, white sleep slate clean. Um, in terms of Lot, see verse twenty-eight about Lot. You may, you may not have, have read the story. In in Genesis, Lot is the nephew of Abraham, the great patriarch of of the people of God. Um, he's Abraham's nephew. God blesses them both, they both become very rich and they separate because there are too many flocks and herds and Lot takes a particular part of the country and ends up living in the city of Sodom, uh, right near its sister city, Gomorrah. You think, well, it's easy to work out the sin of Sodom. What were the Sodomites guilty of? Now, Before we jump to conclusions about the great sin of Sodom, interesting, when the... the, uh, The Bible picks up what Sodom was guilty of. It's not what you might expect. Look at this. Uh, In the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel is a prophet, roughly a contemporary of Daniel, about 6th century BC. And as he talks, he's condemning, or God through him is condemning, one of the cities of Israel, Samaria. And he says this. Now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. So he's saying that Sodom, the, the city of Sodom was like a sister to this city in Israel. She and her daughters were, what? Arrogant, overfed and unconcerned. They didn't help the poor and the needy. Isn't that interesting? The great, the great sin of the Sodomites was arrogance, overfed, unconcerned, ignore the needs of others. And if you look at that list, 26, 27, 28, there's nothing really wrong there, is there? Um, eating, drinking, giving in marriage, buying, selling. Um, they're just they just distracted and, and ignoring God and mistreating each other or ignoring each other. And, you know, very easy to get distracted, isn't it? I, I've got to confess this this week. Uh, Kathy and I are kind of working out how to buy a um, uh, a one bedroom unit, go halves in a home, like a little flat for our daughter. And so the three of us, Kathy and I and our daughter, are buying this little flat. And the real estate agent and there's emails going around. And how do you organise a loan and all that? And I'm thinking buying and selling and getting distracted and and I'm writing a talk about it this week. Right? So it's easy to get distracted. In some ways it's actually easier to get distracted and ignore God because of good things. What does Jesus say? It'll be just like that verse 30 on on the day the Son of Man is revealed. And then he talks about... Remember, he's talking to his disciples. This is to those who would follow him. He warns about where our where the disciples' heart is, if you like, where our hearts would be. Verse 31, On that day, no one who is on the housetop with possessions inside should go back down to get them. Likewise, no one in the field should go back for anything. What what does he mean? Let me me give you an example. Uh, Big Qantas jet. I went to the, uh, I'll get it right, the organisation, the International Air Transport Association. Uh, have a big, long booklet about aircraft safety. And when they come to um, evacuation procedures, you know, you jump on the slide, here's, here's what they say. So we've got the diagram. It says this. Then the cabin crew should instruct passengers to go to their nearest available exit. Using a strong voice, the commands will act as a beacon for passengers, especially if visibility is limited due to smoke in the cabin. Cabin crew can use their flashlights to call passengers to their specific door. Now, what do you do with all your cabin luggage? Anyone want to guess? You leave it behind. Yes, it says this. Instructing passengers to leave behind their belongings is important as baggage carried to the door of the aircraft will impede or delay evacuations and cause pile-ups at the bottom of the evacuation slide. Normally, you get really annoyed if you lose your luggage travelling on an aeroplane or they misplace it. In this situation... I think you could happily leave it behind because it's a matter of life and death. Although, when I checked a little bit further about um, uh, no, when, I, when I checked a little bit further, I I googled Air and Space magazine, and this is what they say about people trying to understand that diagram. Do you know, like in the aeroplane, they they give the safety speech, nobody listens, ever half asleep or reading something else or whatever. Maybe you should pull this out next time, because they say this uh, survey found the correct reading of the extremely busy pictograph at the top of this page would be something like: when using the emergency evacuation slide, passengers should leave behind their luggage to exit more quickly, and remove high heels, which could also, which could puncture the exit slide. But some people surveyed thought it meant that all clothing should be removed before exiting. <laughs> And only 26% of respondents correctly interpreted the images. Um, you'd really think you had a bad day, wouldn't you? Like you lose your luggage and slide and slide down there naked. And but I guess you'd be pleased just to get out. Actually, the little white guy there—he probably, um, yeah. Anyway, we won't worry about that. Just just read next time you're in an aeroplane, read the thing properly. Keep your clothes on. Um, what's the point? You when it's life and death, you. You're able to walk away from things. And I think what he's saying, what Jesus is saying to his disciples is hold the things of this world lightly. It's not that they're bad, it's not that it's but be able to walk away. Don't invest your whole life and everything you have and in the stuff that you own. And you see the warning there, he says, Remember Lot's wife. Verse 32 Remember Lot's wife. I don't know if you know that story. It's a, it's a tragic story. In, in Genesis 19, uh, Lot, who I said is Abraham's nephew, is married uh, to Mrs. Lot. I think we're told her name. Uh, and they have two daughters. And they're told to get out of the city before God's going to destroy it. Uh, Lot and his daughters run. And, well, we're told in Genesis 19, thus God overthrew those cities and the entire plain destroying all those living in the cities. And also the vegetation in the land. But Lot's wife looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Um, Now, if you Google this, I haven't seen this myself, but if you Google Lot's wife, um, around on Mount Sodom, which is right near a part of the Dead Sea, there's this particular pillar that's called Lot's wife. Is it really Lot's wife? Mm, Don't know. Josephus, the Jewish historian, says that it is and said that he'd seen it. Uh, I uh, found an interesting article in my filing cabinet uh, well, I think it's interesting and you're too polite to leave uh, geologists zero in on Sodom and Lot's wife so New York Times uh, 21 years ago so basically in the quarterly journal of engineering and geology and you've probably got some back issues of that at home I guess Um uh, Let me pick it up. It says this. The geologist said that Lot's wife did not appear to turn into a pillar of salt because she dared to look back, but because of the briny nature of the Dead Sea. But the research shows it's more likely the case of mistaken identity. Mr Harris said by telephone from Canada that the Dead Sea was full of salt flows that might have been thrown up by surging water and eventually uh, resembled a female outline. Hence the legend created out of what can now be explained as a simple geological phenomenon. Solomon Gomorrah, he said, saturated soil and highly flammable bitumen, rather than God's wrath, is apparently behind the demise of the cities, the report said. Quote, the area is made of rock types which, when subjected to a large earthquake, will actually liquefy, like shaking up a source bottle." Theirs is a great story, but if they suggest the whole city was destroyed and collapsed into the sea, I don't know how much would be left to dig up. Mr Harris said it was impossible to tell uh, if an earthquake set off the so-called liquefaction process, he believes, swallowed up the cities. But he said archaeologists and engineers should join forces to put the 4,000-year mystery to rest. Now, that's an interesting view of the way the world works, isn't it? Um, uh, an earthquake that liquefied rocks and then rained down highly flammable bitumen, etc., destroyed the cities and they sank, um, but it wasn't the wrath of God. I don't know about you, but that would do me until something bigger came along, right? That's I. It, it just had to see how you see things. But what's the point? The point's not, Lot's wife didn't, first of all, she didn't turn into a pillar of salt like that. She's somehow died in the earthquake, explosions, whatever it is, and then been covered with salt. But she didn't die because she had a quick look over her shoulder when she heard a noise. It's that she couldn't. She she turned back. She couldn't walk away from the city. She couldn't leave it. And that's what Jesus is saying. It's the problem is not for his disciples. The problem is not that you're in the city. The problem is how much of the city is in you. I think think that's what he's saying. And then he talks about kind of an irony, really, in verse 33. He says this again and again in the Gospels. Whoever tries to keep their life will lose it. So you hold on to your life and say, no, no, it's all mine, it's me. You'll lose it. Whoever loses their life will preserve it. If you give your life to him, you'll keep it. Why does this matter so much? Well, you see verse 34, what he promises at the end. Yes, the kingdom will come and it will be this great joy. And but there's a dividing. He's the judge. The king will judge. He says, verse 34, I tell you, on that night two people will be in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding grain together. One will be taken and the other left. The, the division will come down to even the, the closest relationships sharing a bed and sharing a workplace and, and people will be divided on how they've trusted Jesus or or not. Mm. So what does is, what is he say? What do I say to my, my friend, the businessman, when he asks why does God allow that? What, I don't know in individual cases. I just want to say God God's agenda is to see His kingdom grow, is to see people come to know Jesus. And if you've got eyes to see it, if you've got eyes to see people coming to know Him, the kingdom of God, within people, people changing, millions and millions of people around the world, it's the most precious thing. And you can see that now, and at the same time, if you see it, you'll long for His return. When, as Peter Jensen says to involve the great things we'd all probably long for, the defeat of evil, the triumph of good, the death of death, a future of justice and yet forgiveness, intense overflowing human happiness and joy. And that's the promise of Jesus. Um, we'd have a couple of questions come through. So I've got a, a, a slightly, a, an interestingly worded one, so I'll, I'll, see, I'll make sure I trying to get the sense of it. Um, is the amount of city in me like Goldilocks' porridge? Not too little, not too much, but just right. So I think I think they're asking—is the amount of what the city in me? You said talking. Jesus ah. said you've got you know you don't have too much of the city in you. So can you have too much? Can you have not enough? You meant to have just the right amount of city. How, how does that work? <laughs> I I haven't quite thought about it in that way. I, I think what Jesus is saying is you, you need to be able to walk away from it. Don't plant your life and your identity and what's most important in in the things of this world, the things that we own. They're good. You just don't make sure you don't cross out an O and make it a God thing. Do you see? Jesus will say, we looked a couple of weeks ago, Jesus said, you can't serve God and money. Here's a quick test. Are you able to give money away? Can you be generous with the things that you own? If you can't I'd suggest the possessions own you. Mm. It's that it, it, so I can't give you a percentage or whatever. That, that's just Jesus' warning. Remember Lot's wife, she couldn't she couldn't walk away from the city and what that gave her and what that offered her. Mm. Um, that's where her identity and her value and everything was grounded. Jesus says, No, no. If you understand the kingdom of God, what you have and what's promised, that's where your Y- your value and your identity will be. Right, By the way, happy to take any questions, old school too, if you should you wish. Yeah. So, on that, are there any questions from the floor? Vultures. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Yep. It's me trying to finish in time for question time. Very good question. Verse thirty-seven. Where, Lord, they asked. He replied, "Where there is a dead body, there the vultures will gather." That's oh, pretty straightforward, isn't it? <laughs> no, I've thought about that myself. I think what he's saying is, I think what he's saying is, don't worry about it now. It will be very obvious at the time. Uh, in the great outdoors, birds in the air are very obvious. It shows you where it is. I think what he's saying is, they've they've asked where, and I think it's almost his way of saying, look, dumb question. It, it'll be very obvious at the time. I think that's what he means. I think. Thanks, Cathy. I, I missed that in my notes. Oh, the term ancient of days? Yes. Um, that's a good question. I've, I've taken just a little bit out of Daniel chapter 7. Daniel has a, uh, a vision. There's parts of the Bible which are called apocalyptic. Apocalyptic means um, a revealing. In the... Uh, The book of Daniel always disappears when you want to find it in a hurry. Uh, Wait a minute, just talk amongst yourselves. Uh, Here we go. Um, And Daniel has these visions in the second half of the book. Uh, He sees the empires of the world in the context of these great beasts that devour and crush and kill people. And then he actually sees into heaven and sees that well, it's a different reality. He says this, As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. His hair, the hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated. And the books were open. I think it's a picture of God. The idea of white hair is like the idea of being ancient and wise. And the ancient of days is a picture of God. The next thing is this one, like a son of man, comes to the ancient of days and is given authority to rule the world forever. And Daniel and Jesus picks up son of man as his way of talking about himself. And it's, it's not an accident that he does that. Good question. Thanks, so. uh, Any other questions from the floor? Yeah. Yes, sir. Uh, <clears throat> yes, yeah. So, the, organization. Question, yeah. uh, so the, the question is, uh, in the early parts of the chapter, or in particular, uh, in verse um, 21, um, it seems a little nebulous, the idea of the kingdom of God's in your midst. And yet, when you get that picture of heaven, there's... Uh, 10,000 times 10,000 it seems to be organisation and order, etc. That's an interesting question. I hadn't hadn't thought of that. I guess what Jesus is saying about the kingdom is that God's kingdom will grow and God's agenda will happen. It just won't happen in the way that they were expecting or maybe the way that we were expecting. So it's, it's God's spirit will make his kingdom grow and it'll start small like a mustard seed and grow huge um, it's our I think our natural thing is to, is to want to put our trust in organisations and strategy and all that kind of thing no no God's kingdom will grow ind- independently of that now what it'll look like when Jesus returns and there's been the judgement day and the new, the new creation that Peter Jensen talked about I don't know how that'll be organised or planned. Uh, I, I, I can't, above my pay grade. I'm, I'm just happy to wait and see. But, uh, I guess there's a... It, it, I can understand why it's very easy to confuse what Jesus says about the Kingdom of God with religious denominations or organisations or whatever, which I can say will always disappoint. Sorry, they're just a means to an end. They'll have some good, some not. But the kingdom of God's the work of God's spirit in the hearts of people, that's what he's saying is, is powerful. It's um, the last question that's come through on the SMS line. Yep. Uh, verse 33 says, uh, whoever tries to leave, uh, to keep their life will lose it and whoever loses their life will preserve it. Yes. Uh, where do we get from that, that if we give our lives to Jesus, he will preserve it? Um. I guess that, that's, that's a good question. That's just me paraphrasing uh, what he says elsewhere. For example, in Mark, um, in Mark chapter 8, about verse 34, where he'll say, uh, if you lose your life for him and for the gospel, you'll preserve it. So he's just saying it in shorthand here. Elsewhere he'll say, if you give him your life and trust him with your life, you'll, you'll preserve it. If you keep it and say no to him, ultimately you'll lose it. Sure. So, uh, well done. That's, that's a shorthand way of saying what he says elsewhere about giving him your life. Sure. you. Uh, we maybe had time for one more quick question. There's one out there. Otherwise, Al, uh, how do we know Jesus is going to come back? How do we know Jesus is going to come back? Uh, uh, it's a good question. <laughs> Ultimately, I think it's part of the whole package of what Jesus said and did and taught uh, the Old Testament promises, promises Jesus' birth, life, death, resurrection, and ultimately his kingdom. And Jesus picked up those promises. Uh, we've been working our way through Luke's Gospel. And by the way, how much time have we got? 30 seconds? Uh, about a minute. About a minute, okay. Uh, by the way, the reason we work systematically through parts of the Bible is so that the Bible sets the agenda rather than me and my hobby horses. I've got a whole stable of hobby horses, but it's the idea that the Bible should set the agenda. We've been working our way through Luke from chapter 9 through to the end of the Gospel. And Jesus is walking south towards Jerusalem, knowing that when he gets there, he'll die. And what we've seen is Jesus begins again and again to say, I'll go to Jerusalem, I'll crucify me, I'll rise from the dead. After that, I'm coming back later to bring the kingdom. Now, those first two things have happened. He was crucified. The evidence for his resurrection is very strong. If, you, if you've never looked, we could arrange to show you why we believe that. And so given all of those things, Old Testament, Jesus' crucifixion, his resurrection, I believe him when he says he's coming back. And uh, uh, when Peter writes his final letter, he says the reason Jesus waits is his patience giving people time to find forgiveness and be ready. That's why... Jesus wants. The recording that you have just listened to is from the City Bible Forum. For more information about City Bible Forum events in your city or to order other talks, please visit citybibleforum.org.